It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Welcome to Rico Bronia. Evan Roberts, we talk Mets baseball. They win two out of three against the Miami Marlins. I do have a crappy taste in my mouth because of the way Sunday's game went. A game in which they had a million different opportunities to blow this game open. Daniel Castaño is basically saying to the Mets, look, take this freaking baseball game. And they were unable to take it. So I'm not going to sit here and bitch about Adam Adovino. Do I trust Adam Adovino? No. Does any of us trust Adam Adovino? No. Do we want Adam Adovino throwing any big pitch come October or late September? Absolutely not. But they really didn't lose this game because of Adam Bonifino. They didn't lose this game because of pitching. They lost this game because they couldn't hit. Now, overall, this was a good series bounce back after what happened against the Astros. Obviously, you play a three-game series against the Marlins. You want to win the series. But this last game was so freaking winnable. You know, when Brandon Nimmo, who's just smoking the baseball right out of the gate, hits that bomb of a home run in the third inning, and Starling Marte rips a double, and then... And I guess this is the funniest part about this game. The hit or the biggest hit, really the only time they came through with a clutch hit in the finale of this series was the weakest hit ball you'll ever see. Pete Alonso hitting that little blooper that barely fell out of the grasp of Jesus Aguilar for a little bloop double. Outside of that, the Mets could not buy a freaking big hit in this finale against the Marlins. So it's a series win. I'm happy it's a series win. I'm very happy about the way David Peterson threw the baseball, especially because with the uncertainty about when Max Scherzer is going to come back, though it's probably going to be one more rehab start. Carrasco is going to make his next start, but there's certainly uncertainty about him with the back issues. Who knows when Jake's going to pitch again? They're going to need David Peterson to throw a hell of a few more games. Like he's not just going back into the bullpen or heading back to AAA. David Peterson's going to have to start, and he gave you a real quality effort maybe one of the better performances we've seen from David Peterson in a long time but this came down and it started right out of the gate right out of the gate in this finale Brandon Nimmo leadoff double should have had a triple Hoffman was very happy he didn't have a triple because Brandon Nimmo's on my fantasy team and we were tied in triples so I'm screaming Brandon get your ass to third base he did not but as pointed out on the Peacock broadcast, it's because Brandon Nimmo hit the ball so freaking hard. But he leads off with a double great. Marte has that quality at bat. You got two on, nobody out. And right off jump, you got a chance to pound Daniel Castaño and get to the Marlins bullpen again. Because as we'll talk about from game two, the Marlins use so much of their bullpen in game two of this series. So if you can not only put a couple of runs up against Castaño out of the gate, not only do you give David Peterson an early lead, not only do you have a good chance to win this game, you got a chance to knock this guy out second, third inning, and have to go back to the Miami bullpen. I mean, how many times can they use Jimmy Yacobonis? They can't use Jimmy Yacobonis all the time. So first and second, nobody out. And I have to admit, this is the ultimate second guess, but... I really thought this at the time. Last year, I would bitch whenever Francisco Lindor would lay down a bunt. And I remember there was a moment last year, I think it was right after the thumbs down stuff, where Lindor laid down a first inning bunt. And to me, it reeked of a guy that couldn't handle New York. And I think that was the moment where last year, I was as angry with Lindor as I had been at any point in the season. That that 
felt like a I'm scared of New York kind of moment when he laid down that bun. It was sometime in August. It was it was right around the thumbs down situation. And Alomar, Robbie Alomar, used to take a lot of crap from Met fans because he would lay down these random bunts. And we'd look at him and say, you're Robbie Alomar. You're a Hall of Famer. Why are you laying down a bunt? First and second, nobody out first inning. There was a part of me that wanted Lindor to lay down a bunt. And I know that's stupid because base open, they could walk Alonzo, they could go to Marcana, I get all that. But there was a part of me, and I admit it was idiotic, that said, come on, Francisco, just lay down a bunt. Move these guys along. But nobody can move them along. He pops up, Alonzo pops up, Canna strikes out. And that really was a microcosm of the entire game. Second inning, leadoff double, J.D. Davis missed a hard hit rate. More on that in a little bit. And they do nothing with the bottom of the order. And even in that third inning when Nimmo hits the home run and Marte rips the double and they get lucky on the Pete Alonzo double, okay, great. Two to one game, runner on second, one out, tack on. Score some more runs. Canada does nothing. J.D. Davis does nothing. And after that, I give Castaño credit. Dude settled in and pitched a hell of a game. But then in the ninth inning, even after David Peterson throws this really good performance, even after they get a scoreless inning out of Tommy Hunter, you get a leadoff walk. You get great base running by J.D. We're on the quote-unquote dirt ball read. I hate that term, but I guess it's accurate. The dirt ball read. He ends up on second base. And Escobar does nothing. He continues to suck. What else is new? I could continue to say the same things about this guy. Guy sucks. He's just not any good. I like him. He's a good guy. His defense has gotten better at third base. I want to be patient, but my guy, he stinks. Guillermo didn't do anything offensively, but I forgive him, especially because he made that ridiculous defensive play in the ninth inning. And then here's James McCann, and this one really annoyed me because McCann's back off the injured list. He comes back Saturday. I know he had a single late in the game, but overall, very quiet offensive performance by James McCann. He hits the ball hard two times in a row. Hits a line drive right at birdie, I think in the fourth or fifth inning. Hits a fly out in the seventh inning again, right on the screws. So it looks like McCann's close. And here he is, runner on third, two outs, tie game. Can you come through with a big hit? And he strikes out, I think on a slider in the dirt, if memory serves correct, against the immortal Tanner Scott, you know, who's, of course, you know, freaking Sandy Colfax. I know it's only two games back for James McCann, but Jesus Christ, they get no offense from catcher. They don't. And you know what that means. You know what I'm thinking, Hoff. Hoff's thinking the same freaking thing. I've seen two games of James McCann. We appreciate Tomas Nito for his effort, but you've got a kid in double A destroying baseballs. Max Scherzer says this kid is ready. I- I- I've read his defense has improved. Have we moved closer to the day where we could just call up Francisco Alvarez off? Are we there yet? Uh, if Max Scherzer gives the approval, I think that's a definite yes. We're here. We're at the moment. Like, how much more awful offense behind the plate? Like, Nitto, I don't like to pick on because he is what he is. Tomas Nitto is a perfect backup catcher. Really good defensively. He actually comes through with big hits every once in a while. He is Ramon Castro. He is, well, he's better than, different than Ramon Castro. That's not a good comparison, but you know what I mean. He's a real solid backup catcher. James McCann's the guy making a lot of money. And he sucks. He sucks offensively. So if you call up Alvarez tomorrow, Pete, 
and you say to him, we're going to catch you a few days a week. We're going to see how you, how your chemistry works with Max, how your chemistry works with Carrasco, how your chemistry works with David Peterson. We're going to see if the uh, pitch framing is as good as what I read the other day. I read the other day his pitch framing is 10 times better. I read the other day that pitchers love throwing at him. So if that's the case, if he's actually an asset behind the plate, call him up, let him catch a few days a week, let him DH the other days, and let's see if we got a masher with Francisco Alvarez. I mean, let's, let's be serious. Uh, his bat is anything better than Dom Smith or anybody else, any other DH that we've seen so far. You might as well at least give him that aspect of it. Even if, you, again, like you said, one catching appearance a week is fine, but the bat is legit. If you, you know? can hit, if you can mash, we will find a way and we will find a place for you to play. And I admit that you and I have no idea if defensively he's ready. The only thing I can rely on is what I'm reading about what they're saying about him at A or what players are saying about him. But it only took two days of James McCann. That's it. Eight at-bats of James McCann for me to say, all right, all right, I'm done. Let's let's call the kid up. <laughs> let's see what Francisco well, Alvarez has. And listen, here's the deal, right? If you have Francisco Alvarez, you give him, say, a month before the trade deadline, right? See what we actually have in him. So then maybe you don't need to go and get two bats. Maybe yeah. you need one, and then you bring in another pitcher. I agree, dude. I, I think that what's so appealing about Alvarez, and I, I've gone back and forth because – You've got two kids in AAA or in the minors, Vientos to AAA, Alvarez at AA, where you could take either guy, call either guy up, especially the way Vientos has performed over the last two months, and say, I'm going to give this guy four weeks and I'm going to give him a chance to hit. What's appealing about Alvarez, and I know you could say the same about Vientos because Escobar is an issue at third base, but there's a part of me, as much as I kill Escobar, where I say, I know he has it in him. I know that there's a chance that Eduardo Escobar can get hot and look like the guy we expected when the Mets had initially signed him. I think the reality is the reality with James McCann. The guy had really one good offensive season, and this is who he is. He's a light-hitting catcher who's not as good defensively as Tomas Nito. I know his pitch-framing stats are actually better than Tomas Nito, but I use this test. I'm pointing to my eye right now. I'm using the eye test. I watch every Met game. I think most people listening to Rico right now, you watch every freaking Met game. Maybe your opinion's different than mine, but I view Tomas Nito as a stronger defensive catcher. And here's the difference with Nito and McCann. Because if I'm choosing between the two, it's Nito. Tomas Nito will accidentally run into a big hit. He's had a few of them this year. Like if you go ninth inning of this Sunday game against the Marlins, runner on third, two outs, Tomas Nito may come through. There was no chance James McCann was coming through, even though he hit the last two balls hard. But Alvarez comes up here, and you're right. You give him a chance to hit and maybe be the DH, because as much as J.D. Davis's hard hit rate is as good as anybody in baseball, you didn't need to see results eventually. And J.D. Davis swings through fastballs more than any human being in, on the planet. So hard hit rate my ass. How many times does J.D. Davis swing through a 95-mile-an-hour fastball? Show me those numbers. But Alvarez at least gives you an option either behind the plate or as DH. I hate to go on a tirade about it, but every time I see Alvarez put up a three for five in double A, I'm looking at this saying, call him up. Because the, the other thing is, and, and there's some big examples of it. There are some minor examples of it. When you call up a super prospect in the middle of a season, 
Sometimes incredible stories are written. Miguel Cabrera is probably the best example of all time with this as a 20-year-old kid called up the impact he had for the Marlins when they won the World Series in 2003. And what's beautiful, and I know we mentioned this before, he wouldn't come up as a savior because the Mets are still, you know, despite what happened in the finale of the series, they're scoring five runs a game. Like offensively, they're in the top three in Major League Baseball in runs per game. So their offense isn't a hindrance, even though there are spots in their lineup that are so he wouldn't have to come up here as the end all be all but every time we're going to watch James McCann every time we're going to watch Eduardo Escobar because it is sort of connected there is that frustration of all right let's see what the kids got either way the finale of this series sucked they had a million opportunities they were one for 13 with runners in scoring position but the overall positive was David Peterson real quick on that ninth inning We'll get to some of the other games in this series, the plan for Jacob DeGrom, the plan for Max Scherzer, as well as how important Jeff McNeil is and how obvious that's been over the next few days. We'll also get to some of your uh, questions and comments uh, via Twitter here on the Rico Bronio. One last thing about the finale of this series. Adam Adovino comes into this game in the ninth inning. It's 2-2. We just mentioned what happened in the top of the inning. James McCann strikes out. For those who watched the game, it was on Peacock. And you have to have a subscription for Peacock. I have a subscription for Peacock because I'm a wrestling fan. (laughs) And I have the WWE Network. Otherwise, I'm not sure I'd have Peacock. But I was watching the cock. I thought the cock had pretty good coverage today. I like Cliff Floyd. What's his name? Um, The Seaver Killer. Tommy Hutton. Tommy Hutton has driven me nuts for years. He was such a homer when he used to do the Brave games. He used to do the Brave games, right? I'm thinking of the same guy. Uh, and the other guy's pretty good. The play-by-play guy's pretty good. Cliff was all right. For the most part, I could live with Tommy Hutton. I thought the broadcast was all right for anyone who watched it. But we get to the ninth inning, and this one cracked me up because I'm watching this game with my dad. We're visiting uh, my parents, and I'm watching this game live on a Sunday afternoon. And Garrett Cooper gives the first pitch a effing ride to deep right field. Off the bat, I'm like, oh, that's it. My dad's like, no, 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 he's got it, he's got it. Makes the catch. I say to my dad, I don't like this. First pitch of the ninth inning, rips it to right field. We're going to lose this game here in the bottom of the ninth inning. Next batter is Jesus Aguilar. Hits this screaming line drive, and Luis Guillermo, Superman, he flies through the air, makes this incredible diving play. I'm pumped up, because even though the Guillermo's bats cooled off at least over the last few days. Uh, by the way, Buck had him hitting 50 the other day. What was that about? I love Louie. But I see that lineup. I'm like, Luis Guillermo's hitting fifth? Luis had a rough series offensively. Still love the guy. Rough, rough series offensively. But he makes this diving Superman catch. And I looked at my dad again, and I said, there's no way out of Eno's getting through this inning. First ball hits the warning track. Second ball, Guillermo needs to be Superman. Like, what are we talking about here? And then Nick Fortes hits just an absolute effing bomb. And after he hits this home run and I quickly get up and I shut my scorebook, I thought to myself, you know what? I'm kind of glad it happened because would we really want to sit there for another hour and a half of the Mets not being able to come through in a big spot, wasting a beautiful hot Sunday afternoon watching this garbage on Peacock, put me out of my misery. Now, I rationalize that. I'm not thinking that necessarily in the moment. It's like when the Nets lost game four to the Celtics and got swept. I think the next day to Craig, I said, I'm just so glad they put me out of my misery. I wasn't thinking that during the game. I'm trying to win the game. I'm trying to hope my team wins the game. 
But when Fortes hit that bomb, there was a, all right, good. Let's get the hell out of here. Three-hour baseball game. It started at 12 noon. We won the series. Let's move on. And that's the truth. Look, they won the series. And ultimately, after losing those two games to Houston, that's what I needed. That's what we needed as Met fans. And even throughout this series, I certainly felt this way in the finale of this series. I mentioned this last week during the Houston series. You really felt not having Jeff McNeil in this lineup. Because at the present time, until they make a trade or until Alvarez comes up like we talked about earlier, Jeff McNeil offers Pete Alonzo the best protection you can find. Mark Hanna, not that guy. Luis Guillerme, not that guy. It's Jeff McNeil. And when you look at Sunday's game, if Jeff McNeil plays, I think they win. I think it's as simple as that because he's been so clutch. He's hitting over 400 with two outs and runners in scoring position. And I do wonder, I don't mind that the Mets are being conservative with Jeff McNeil's hamstring issue because the last thing you want to have happen is he goes back out there and he re-injures it. And it's worse. Now you're without him for six to eight weeks. But when you miss five consecutive games, and that's where Jeff is at. The Mets have an off day on Monday. They play Tuesday. And I think logically he'll be in the lineup Tuesday. But when you miss five consecutive games and you don't pinch hit in any of them, even if Buck says he was available, who knows if he was available, don't you start to say why the hell wasn't the guy put on IL? You know, there's a cutoff, and I think five's the number, where you say, why is the guy on the roster? And maybe there's a feeling that without the pitcher hitting, you can hide a guy on the bench, because look at a guy like Nick Plummer, who's still on the roster. You've almost forgot Nick Plummer's on the roster, because you never see him. You don't need that many pinch hitters. Ideally, you'd pinch hit for the catcher. I get that. But maybe that's the thought that teams have now of, well, we don't need as many pinch hitters because of the pitcher not hitting. So we'll just keep a guy on the roster not playing for five days because when he comes back for game number six, we saved ourselves four days. But you go back to the opener of this series. It was a really solid performance by Taiwan Walker because Ty... Did something on Friday we've seen a lot of this year. We saw it in the Angel game a couple of weeks ago. In the first two innings, he looks cooked. In the first two innings, it looks like you're going to see a bad Taiwan Walker performance. I mean, you look at Friday night's game, first four Marlins had base hits against him. He's lucky because he got a pickoff and a double play. Gets into trouble in the second inning, somehow gets through it, and then gives you a quality performance where you've got Buck letting him start the seventh inning. I mean, think about this weekend. The Mets had three consecutive games in which they had a starting pitcher pitch into the seventh inning. That was incredible. Now, let's get to the play because this play was... This was a play I'm so glad I saw it with my son watching. My five-year-old's been getting into these games. He falls asleep before the games are over, but it was learning baseball. Basic stuff. Runners in scoring position, things like that. Basic strategies. So... When the Mets are challenging two plays at the same time in the sixth inning, this was a fascinating play to try to explain. And if you didn't see it or you don't remember it, first and second, nobody out. Starling Marte hits a ground ball to Williams Astadio, who's in the game because Chaz Chisholm's out with a back injury. And Astadio, I think, makes the right play. He charges at Nimmo, tags Nimmo, Throws to first base. They call Nimmo out. They call Marte out. But hold the phone. 
Replay shows Marte beat it. Okay, that's easy. Marte beat it. Jet can understand that. Yes, he beat it. He should be safe. But then you got that weird play at second where Acidio clearly tags Nimmo with his glove and the ball is in his hand. So obviously he's safe. It's pretty straightforward. But here's where things get a little murky. Estadio knows he effed up because immediately after throwing the first base, screams, get the ball back to me. Ball gets thrown back to him. He tags Brandon Nimmo. They go to review. Great move by Buck. I mean, you got to love Buck just being all over it. I'm challenging everything. I'm challenging the play at first. I'm challenging the play at second. Play at first is easy. Marte is safe. The play at second, here's what, you know, logic sometimes doesn't win out. Estadio is admitting in the midst of the play, I didn't tag him. So I'm trying to fix my mistake. Like when Lindor almost missed first base on the home run and Lindor quickly goes back and touches it or when Marte scores and he misses home plate and then goes back and touches it. Sometimes the player realizes it, they quickly fix it. So Astadio's saying, hey, I didn't tag him correctly. Give me the ball back so I can tag him. Ball gets back to Astadio. He obviously tags Nimmo, who thinks he's called out. So the umpire is ruling. I think Buck was agreeing with this after the game. Hey, you can't blame Brandon Nimmo. Because Nimmo's called out. So what, why is he running to second base once he's called out? And I understand that and I respect that. But Estadio also, immediately, before there's any review, is saying, I didn't tag him correctly. I'm trying to fix it. So I'm not disagreeing with the umpires. I'm just trying to be logical here. Logically, Nimmo should be out. But think about it. He, he should be out. Even though, yes, he may have run to second base if the umpire didn't call him out. Astadio's immediately realizing, I effed up, let me fix it. If Astadio never does that, okay, nothing ever happens, then of course Brandon Nimmo is safe and he should go to second base. But I think, and this is why replay is so awesome, yet not perfect. I love that there's replay. You want to fix these mistakes, but logic gets eliminated. Now, as a Met fan, I'm thrilled because the play benefited the Mets. It was about to be a runner on third two outs. Instead, there's bases loaded, nobody out. And to their credit, really to Lindor's credit, who had that monster Friday night game with the home run in the first inning, he rips the bases clearing double. Beautiful. I think that was the play where Nimmer almost got outrun by Starling Marte. I think that was the exact same play when Lindor hit the bases clearing double. So uh, I'm not saying the umpires got it wrong. I'm just saying sometimes you watch these things, and this is all new to us because replay is still relatively new. So this isn't something that's been around for 100 years. I just think logically Astadio kind of got screwed. He made a mistake. He immediately realized, even before review, I made a mistake. Let me try to fix it. And he got effed to the point where he got DFA'd on Sunday. <laughs> I'm not saying it's related, but hey, he came in for Jazz Chisholm. It changed the entire game, and obviously... That play broke it open. And then we got the biggest moron in baseball. And I'm surprised, Pete. I'm disappointed in you. Pete, you know why I'm disappointed in you? Me? I'm not. I, there's probably plenty of reasons. I'm not sure what this one is, though. So I've got a theory, and I don't think Don Mattingly confirmed it. But on Friday night, John Birdie, the biggest moron oh, wow. in baseball, down by two runs. Mr. Hey, I got to pad my stats. <laughs> tries to steal second base in a two-run game, and to the credit of my man Tomas Nito, he throws him out. And really to the credit of, I think it was Guillerme who blocked him from getting to second base. So really it was a great play by Guillerme. Birdie's out. 
right? Right after there's like an infield hit. <laughs> so the game continues on. I'm convinced Mattingly didn't play birdie on Saturday because he was so effing pissed off at him for being caught stealing in a two-run game in the ninth inning. So my question is, Pete, why didn't you release John Birdie in fantasy? You should have gotten rid of this guy. This is a stat-padding moron who's trying to steal second base in a two-run game. Uh, I made many mistakes this weekend, and that was one. I was going to drop him. Instead, I uh, dropped Brendan Donovan, who went, uh, had a triple and a home run today. <laughs> By the way, you did drop Brendan Donovan, and I want you to be the first to know that I have already placed my waiver claim on Brendan Donovan. So if you want to so have back, I. <laughs> <laughs> so have I. <laughs> I'll fight you for it. <laughs> By the way, what the, what the hell was John Birdie thinking? Like, I, I can't get over that. And what's also weird is not only is John Birdie crazy for running down two in the ninth inning, I can't believe Nitto threw. Because usually that's an easy defensive indifference where Birdie's not even getting a stolen base anyway. The whole thing just boggled my mind when that went down in the ninth inning. Well, the Marlins, I mean, they talked about it plenty, how they are just a very selfish team. No one's running out balls, even to first base. Like, they're all just, like, lollygating through. There's not good chemistry. Like, Jazz is electric, but there's something a little bit off with that team. And that's why they have those meetings with Mattelier a couple months, like, what, a couple weeks ago? Hey. You're right, because an inning earlier in that game, Avisal Garcia hit a ground ball to third base and, like, didn't move. And I don't know if it's a coincidence, but Garcia didn't play Saturday, didn't play Sunday, and John Birdie didn't play Saturday. Now, I haven't heard if Don Mattingly benched him, and maybe that was more of a private thing, but I would have benched him because I just know this as a fan, where Diaz had been shaky, even though he changed the story on Saturday because he was dominant on Saturday. Diaz has been shaky. If I'm John Birdie, and I got the second and third hitters in my lineup coming up. I cannot be thrown out trying to go to second base. Like, it doesn't make any baseball sense. That's not only selfish, it's stupid. No, and then that's the, but that's the Marlins ML right now. Is They're very stupid. They're very, I, I don't want to say selfish, but they're just not playing hard-nosed baseball, which is the, what the Mets do. Like, people keep on questioning why the Mets continue to win games, why they're the best in the NL. It's because they're gritty. They fight things out. Like, Francisco Lindor is smiling, but he's also hustling down the line. He's making, he is doing defensive things. He's doing, even the play at second base where he almost got tagged out and he's like, made that crazy slide. That was great. It's beautiful. Like, things like that people don't recognize all the time. Like, that's why he may not be an MVP, but that's an MVP move. Well, you know, as a team, the Mets aren't dumb. And there haven't been many moments where you walk away from a game and say, hey, they lost this game because they were stupid. Like, you look at the Sunday game when we railed about it. They lost because they didn't get a big hit. That's an execution thing. It's not even, hey, they made this dumb mistake. They made that dumb mistake. And now that's happened in the past, but it hasn't happened this year. You let the other team make the dumb mistake, and then you take advantage of it. And that's that's pretty much what they did. So, Look, I give him credit. I guess there's a reason why the Marlins are a sub-500 team, whether it's selfishness or it's just being dumb and playing dumb baseball. Uh, to the Mets' credit, that's part of why they were able to win two out of three, and they won every challenge in this series. Like, every time Buck challenged, it seemed to be a smart challenge, and I think there may have been one Don Mattingly challenge, and he took the over. Uh, the Saturday game was about our boy Pete. I mean, uh, Pete Alonso continues to have... An incredible year. The home run in the second. The home run in the eighth inning that turned out to be the game winner in this game. The clutch RBI double by Brandon Nimmo to add some insurance. 
really good, solid pitching by Chris Bassett, who gives you seven innings. And Chris even said this after the game. I'm going out there and I'm giving you innings. So even in a game in which he allows three runs, he gives up a couple of home runs in this game, the Sanchez two-run bomb, he gives him seven innings. And that is so freaking important, especially with a bullpen that's not that good. And to Bassett's credit, to Carrasco's credit when he's been on, obviously hasn't been good his last few starts. To Peterson's credit on Sunday, to Taiwan Walker's credit, and hopefully to Max and Jake when they're back. This rotation, and I know their team ERA isn't good since Max got hurt, but this rotation gives them innings. And giving them innings lets you hide the fact that this is not a great bullpen. You know, Seth Lugo came back and he pitched a clean eighth inning. First two guys hit the ball very hard off him. I don't think any of us have any confidence in Seth Lugo. So, you know, when you get seven out of Bassett and you know you got Diaz in the ninth inning and you're only asking your bullpen to get three outs, which is all they were asking from Seth Lugo, that's a win. So great performance by Chris Bassett, who definitely looks like a different pitcher. I give him credit for that. I mean, I remember we were looking at him a couple of starts ago saying, what the hell's going on with him? You know, what's wrong with Chris Bassett? But Chris Bassett has absolutely figured out. And I I needed, I needed, selfishly, I needed that Edwin Diaz dominance on Saturday night. Heart of the order. Granted, it's the Marlins, but still. Heart of the order. Soler, Aguilar, Jesus Sanchez. Bing, bing, bing. Strikes out the side. A dominating out of Edwin Diaz. Because his last few saves, including the night before, hadn't been very dominant. I was curious if the Mets had held on. Because remember, they had a brief lead in that game uh, David Peterson had. If they had, did they actually have a lead? Yeah, they had a lead for one inning, I think. I think David Peterson gave it back immediately when Rojas hit the home run. But if they had ever regained the lead, Diaz wasn't going to pitch the ninth inning. I mean, there's no way. Now, two, two performances in a row. Buck trying to be extra conservative with him, even with an off day coming up. And the Mets have had a lot of off days. They continue to have a lot of off days, which is great considering the state of the rotation. Considering Carlos Carrasco, if they needed to, it doesn't appear like they will, could have pushed him back. Uh, You can skip a guy like Trevor Williams. Again, if you want to, it looks like they are. So these off days are actually beneficial. But this rotation has been able to help hide the fact that this is not a great bullpen outside of Edwin Diaz. And with Scherzer coming back soon, and hopefully Jacob DeGrom, that'll continue. Doesn't mean they shouldn't add a relief arm. And I'm sorry, Colin Holderman and Trevor May coming back, they're not the answers. I thought Holderman actually pitched pretty well before he got hurt. Trevor May, who knows? I can't rely on Trevor May. But when you can get seven innings out of your starters, and maybe they could have gotten more out of David Peterson. I wouldn't have pushed it, but Buck could have. We saw Buck push Chris Bassett one start earlier. It obviously didn't work out against the Marlins last Sunday. But it certainly helps kind of hide some of the efficiencies with this bullpen. As far as Max and Jake are concerned, let's start with Max. I have no issue with the Mets giving him another rehab start. Uh, I mentioned this last week. You got to be conservative. You got to make sure Max is healthy. With that said, I do wonder aloud. When Scherzer was asked why another rehab start, and he said, I can't have a setback, I do wonder if you're pitching, where and why would it matter at what level? You know, Max is such a competitor. I don't think Max Scherzer goes in with double A start and doesn't try as hard. 
I mean, you saw the intensity of Max Scherzer before his one rehab start. He's intense. Like, the main reason to me why you keep a guy in a rehab assignment is so that you don't only get four innings out of him when you call him back. That could affect your bullpen for three or four days. Or maybe you're not as confident with the performance. You want to get the the fine-tuning of being out there for a start or two. In Max's case, if you're not concerned about either of those things, it's not as if he's giving 70% effort in a rehab start for Binghamton. We see how crazy he is. So... From that aspect, I don't really understand the setback attitude towards it. But whatever. I don't have an issue with it. Especially around this time of year where you have the off days. And you can take... It's not like you have to start Trevor Williams again. You don't. Right now, Trevor Williams could go to the bullpen. You can start Carrasco and you could start... Let's see. Ty pitch Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Boom. Ty can pitch Wednesday. You could have Carrasco Tuesday coming off the back issue with Trevor Williams to back him up just in case things go bad. Taiwan Walker on Wednesday. You got another freaking off day on Thursday. Boom, the weekend series against Texas and potentially have Max Scherzer for Sunday's game. So it looks like we'll see Max by the weekend against Texas. As far as Jake's concerned, let's play the counting game because Buck was asked recently, hey, when's Jake coming back? And Buck... (laughs) This would annoy us if the Mets weren't good. I'm telling you right now. Buck says, well, I I, I know the plan for Jake, but I'm not going to tell you. Like, he's basically taunting us. Like, I'm not going to tell you. I know the plan. I know when he's going to pitch. But you know who I'm not going to tell? I'm not going to tell you. It's not really a good Buck imitation, but I I, I don't I don't know. That's pretty you got bad, a Buck actually. imitation? No, no, I don't, but I, I'm not going to try that. That was terrible. That was atrocious. <laughs> And listen, P, I'm not going to tell you. I just know he ain't, he's going to start when I tell him to start, and it ain't going to be when I tell you. Sounds sound like more like Kevin Costner in some kind of weird Western. No, I, st- I sound like Charlie Manuel when he was the manager of the Phillies. Yeah, Jimmy Rollins, he's really good. And the Mets, yeah, they're a bunch of choke artists. That's what Cole Hamill said. You do sound like Charlie Manuel. So here, here's my math on Jake. And I know the last time I played the counting game with Jacob deGrom was last summer, and he hasn't made a start since. But Jacob deGrom, unlike Max, it's going to take a while for him to increase the workload. So he threw a bullpen the other day in which he threw 20 pitches and faced live hitters. He's going to have another bullpen in which, let's say, he throws 30 pitches. If the Mets finally deem him ready, remember, there's a clock. There's a 30-day clock. As soon as they put him on a rehab assignment, 30 days begins. So at least we would know, let's say he begins a rehab assignment on July 1st. We would know 100% by August 1st, barring a setback, because you could obviously take him out of the rehab and just keep him on the injured list. But you would know, assuming no setbacks, he'd be back by August 1st. And I got to tell you, man, I think they're going to use every day in that rehab. That's why I'm telling you right now, if I had to lean, I'd say we're looking at August now. I used to think uh, the All-Star break, but let's just do the math on this. If he makes his first start this weekend, a week from now, I don't even know if that's realistic, but let's just say that's what it is. You're starting that 30-day window, boom, on July 1st. Uh, July 1st. Let's say he makes the start July 1st, which would be this weekend. He's going to need four rehab starts. Let's say he starts by throwing two innings. Then he goes to three innings. Then he goes to four innings 
Now he gets to five. That's four rehab starts. Again, assuming no setback, because obviously that changes everything. Four starts, five days between starts gets you to 20 days. Plus, you want to maybe give a couple extra days. You're looking at the full 30. So I would guess right now, again, I keep saying it because I get nervous, barring no setbacks, I would think August 1st is starting to become the realistic date. I don't think it's the all-star break. I just don't because I think they're going to want to maximize the fact that he hasn't pitched in a year. He needs a complete full spring training. Look how long spring training is. Look how long a starter generally needs to build up. So we're really looking here at when's he making that first rehab start and then add the 30 days to it. So I'm figuring August 1st. And then they're going to be very, very careful with him once he starts pitching, which again, I'm not complaining about it. I'm not disagreeing with it. I think you have to be careful. The guy's barely pitched in a year. I'm just trying to be honest about the realistic timetable expectation for Jacob DeGrom. But once he makes a rehab start, man, it's going to be exciting. I'll tell you right now, when he makes that first rehab start, ML, M-I-L-B, minor league baseball, they got to show us that game. We're all going to watch it. And you know what we're all going to do when Jake pitches? We're going to hold our breath every time he throws a baseball. And every time we see the velocity at 101 miles an hour, we're all going to cringe. We're all going to look at it and say, ah, ah, how fast did he just throw? Ah. Every time, every time he breaks off a nasty slaughter, we're going to say, that's a nasty slaughter, but geez, is he all right? How's he feeling? And then those few days after he makes the start, there's also going to be nervous. How's he feeling? Is he okay? I do think in all seriousness, it's weird to say this about DeGrom because he is hopefully a future Hall of Famer. He's my all, he's become my all-time favorite man. I love the guy. Getting Max back right now is the priority because I think we have seen this team succeed with Max Scherzer as the ace. Jacob DeGrom has been a theory. And, I, and I've used that phrase a lot to describe basketball players over the years. Ben Simmons is a theory. Kevin Durant is a theory. Remember when he missed the whole first year because of McKillie's injury? I'm very used to a guy not being on a team, but us continuing to talk about a guy as if he was on the team. I love Jake. He hasn't pitched in a year. And think about this. The last time Jacob DeGrom pitched and was able to continue pitching on a two-month-in-a-row consistent basis without any kind of issue, you basically got to go back to 2019. 2020 was such an odd season. He missed a short period of time, nothing significant, but he did miss a little bit of time in 2020. Even when he pitched in 2021, every other start, there was some kind of physical issue. So uh, I'm hopeful, but let's keep in mind how little Jake has actually pitched over the last couple of years. Three-game series come, or two-game series, I should say, Coming up with the Astros, we got to get some revenge on these bastards. I, I don't hate the Houston Astros anymore. That's the Yankee fans' job. They're the ones that scream F Altuve, even though Altuve continues to F them basically over and over again. Who's your daddy? Jose's your daddy. So I don't have any ill feelings towards the Astros, but I had ill feelings towards losing back-to-back games in Houston. And I do think there's... we, Despite the success against the Dodgers, I want to beat a good team. I want to beat a good team. So it's more, you know, well, let me just show that those two games in Houston last week with a bad Carlos Carrasco and Trevor Williams, let me just prove that was blah. 
that was a, yeah, it was an unfortunate situation in terms of who was starting those games. Carrasco's got a chance at revenge, and then I assume Taiwan Walker will make the next start. Then the schedule actually gets sort of soft with Texas and the Cincinnati Reds coming up. But three-game series with the Rangers over the weekend, a three-game series against the Reds, and then guess who they play after that? The Marlins again. This schedule sucks. They're playing the Phillies all the time in April. Now we get to see Jazz Chisholm and Sam. I bet you they face Sandy Alcantara again. They did a good job against Sandy this week. They finally handed him an L. And Hoffman hasn't brought it up, but I have to admit I did something very dirty over the weekend. Do you know what I did? You know what I'm about to refer to? Something very dirty I did, Pete? I don't remember, but I'm, I, once you say it, it's going to be obvious. Go for it. What is it? I picked up Trevor Rogers. Oh, yeah, to you face did. the Mets in fantasy. <laughs> and he sucks. I don't understand. He's been terrible. I, I traded him away or dropped him. He's been so bad. Why'd you do that? Uh, it was from a fantasy standpoint. I was really chasing strikeouts. I uh, wasn't as concerned about ERA or whip or losses. I was chasing strikeouts. And when he struck out the side in the first inning, I'm like, wow. So I'm an pissed. evil genius. But then the Mets got to him. And, and honestly, a part of why, and I, I think you feel the same way, Pete, as a Met fan. I don't ever pick a guy up rooting for them to succeed against the Mets. My priority is the Mets 100 times out of 100. It's just sometimes you have feelings. You let a guy play. If he happens to pitch well, I'm more pissed off that he pitched well, but at least you get a benefit to it. So there's no like mixed feelings about these things. Uh, I doubt you had any mixed feelings with John Birdie being on your fantasy team facing the Mets. You want John Birdie to go 0 for 5 with 5 strikeouts. I mean, no, it just is what it dude, is. I have Alcantara on the team, uh, on my team, and I was surprised when the, I thought that he was going to shut down the Mets. So I was happy to see the Mets get to him. So like, I'm like, yeah, it sucks my fantasy team, but the bigger picture is a World Series. I don't really care Damn about right. my fantasy team. I just thought rot, the Mets have had their issues against lefties. And I thought he would be decent. Mets did a great job against him. And as far as Alcantara is concerned, one thought on that from the game on Friday night. The Mets hit two solo home runs against Sandy Alcantara. Lindor hit the bomb in the first inning. Canna hit a home run in the fifth inning. Outside of that, through the first five innings, the Mets couldn't do anything against Sandy Alcantara. And the whole game changed on an infield hit by Tomas Nito, a bunt base hit by Brandon Nimmo, the screwy play with Marte that we talked about earlier in which the double review took place and he made the bad pitch to Lindor. So I thought Alcantara, despite the pitching line of giving up five runs, he still went seven innings and it really took that really fluky sixth inning and the Lindor double that did him in. And then to Alcantara's credit, which is impressive, even though I get it, not his greatest performance, he gets out of the sixth inning after the Lindor double and then pitches a one, two, three, seventh, or at least a relatively clean seventh inning. So he's tremendous. I got to tell you, Sandy Alcantara is a hell of a pitcher. And, and I think, I think it was like three years ago and, and correct me if I'm wrong, if it wasn't him, the Marlin pitcher on a Sunday afternoon who threw like an 80 pitch complete game shutout against the Mets. I'm pretty sure it was him. Was a young Sandy Alcantara. Yeah. He's still young, but. At the time, we're like, who the hell is this guy? This son of a bitch pitching a 75-pitch complete well, game didn't, shot. Did, didn't they get him? He was like the highlighted pitcher in one of the trades for, was it Ozuna? When yeah, he I think he was to, in the, the uh, Cardinals. I think he was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah, I mean, so I always have my eye on him. But yeah, since that day where I'm pretty sure what 80 pitches, whatever it was, was nasty. It was, that, that was like, I was like, this guy's going to be special. And by the way, um, that 
he gave up four earned runs because only one one of those was a was an error. But right. you're right. I think he's he's going to be the Cy Young of the of the NL. No question. If he, oh no, if he's, he's great. Yeah, he's great. the The only question left is one of the Miami Marlins going to trade him. <laughs> Dude, they're they, not going to trade him. No, no, no. I, they 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 actually have him on an incredible team friendly contract. He is signed through 2027, and he's wow. making. $10 million a year. At least I think he's going to make $10 million a year. So the Marlins have him on this insane contract. But now let's get to seriousness. They will trade him. I mean, they may not trade him today. They may not trade him next year. But this is who this franchise is. And there will come a point. I'm going to guess, and you can write this down, 2024. It's not going to happen this year. It's not going to happen next year. In 2024, when he's 29 years old, He's got about two years left on his deal, making no money. He's one of the best pitchers in baseball. They will cash out. No doubt in my mind. Maybe on the next podcast, we don't have time for to do it today. We have to discuss, as a Met fan, who would you rather pursue? Aaron Judge or Shohei Otani? <laughs> <laughs> or Sandy Alcantara? Listen, let's, let's go. By the way, uh, I just uh, one quick thing I wanted to get to. Before we go to, if we're doing anything else, I don't know. But you talked about uh, Degrom coming back August first. I, I need to touch on something because the fact is August first trade deadline. That's not an ideal timing of it. Would you prefer to see him come back September first, August fifteenth? So at least we have a move in place, so we're not relying on Degrom coming back August first. They made the move. They made the move. The move. The Jacob Degrom insurance is Max Scherzer. There's no doubt in my mind. Like, I, I know the Mets are attached to adding a starter. And if Carlos Carrasco went down with an injury, I mentioned this last week, they should add a starter. And they could always use a depth starter. You know, so if Tyler Molly or, yeah, Tyler Molly's available, okay, fine. Um, Zach Gallon's available, okay, fine. You know, a middle to back of the rotation guy. I don't think Jacob DeGrom's health, at least in my opinion, impacts how I'm pursuing and who I'm going after at the trade deadline. I really don't because they have an ace. Their ace is Max Scherzer if Jacob DeGrom isn't ready. And, and, and I got to tell you, as much as I'd love to add a depth guy, I would rather add a DH if they're not going to give Francisco Alvarez an opportunity, and I'd rather add one or two big bullpen arms. And the Mets have, they have prospects. I don't want to trade all of them. Like, I'm not, you know, trading Mark Vientos. I'm not trading Francisco Alvarez. I got to be smart about what I have. So the timing with DeGrom is very different than last year. I know last year we're still kind of uh, scared off by what happened where minutes after the trade deadline or minutes before the trade deadline, we find out Jake had a setback or Jake's out. And it led to this, hey, would they have traded for a starting pitcher? I think you have to almost assume Jacob DeGrom is not a guy that's going to help us out. Haven't we done that all season long where if he comes back and he pitches great, but you can't rely on him or assume that he's going to be there? We have, but again, I still think at the back of people's heads is he's going to be in the playoff time. He's going to be there. If not, we need a number two. Which a number I, two? Where? Yeah, I, I know. Right now, there's where. Not. Where's the number two coming from? Like, is Luis Castillo a number two? Not this if the year. Cincinnati Reds trade him. No, he's terrible this year. Okay, so so then need a number two. 
I think they would have to rely on what they have right now. I think the only starting pitching you'd go after is depth starting pitching because, A, you don't trust David Peterson, even though he's coming off this great performance. Trevor Williams isn't any good. Carlos Carrasco's falling apart. Jake never comes back. Max Scherzer's your ace. So I don't know, I don't know what it changes if all of a sudden there was bad news with Jacob DeGrom. Maybe you, uh, how about this idea? If we can't stretch him out to be a starter, maybe a bullpen guy. <laughs> I mean, it sounds stupid, but I mean, we're thinking about that with Tyler McGill. I, I always go back and forth about this. Um, are you asking more physically out of a guy to pitch back-to-back games than a guy to pitch once every five or six days? I don't know. And I, and I remember when we talked about McGill, I even mentioned that, like, is there more of a physical risk, even though in the, in the whole grand scheme of things, you're not throwing more innings, you're throwing less innings, but you're being asked to pitch back-to-back days. You're being asked to pitch three out of five days because if you're going to be a top reliever, there are going to be days where you have to pitch back-to-back days. I mean, if the Mets are going to go where we want them to go, Edwin Diaz is pitching back-to-back days. So I, I think the only way I would have considered that with Jake, remember last year when he was slowly working his way back and it was a thought he could be back in late September? If Jacob DeGrom had a setback and was beginning his rehab assignment on September 5th, I'd say there's no time. Like, there just isn't enough time to get this guy stretched out to be a starter, move him to the bullpen. That's not something I would consider at this point in the season at all. Uh, Let's take a couple of questions and comments. We'll obviously be back and do another Rico right after the Astros series concludes, which uh, Craig and I will be at. We're having our big SNY sweet day for the Wednesday afternoon game between the New York Mets and the Houston Astros. A lot of pressure on Craig. He can't leave that game early. That's a sweet day. We're working at that game. So I will certainly keep an eye on him. We'll take a couple (laughs) of tweets. Of course, you can tweet anytime at Evan Roberts, WFAN. What do you got, Pete? All right. uh, First one up. By the way, everyone's hitting about Josh Bell, which you talked on last episode of Rico Bologna. So we touched on that. So we don't have to repeat that again. And then everyone else is, again, when are we getting Francisco uh, Francisco Alvarez? When is he going to get called up? That's the trend is the catcher and Escobar sucking. But here's some other ones. From Freddie, a lot of different numbers on Twitter. Are you concerned the Mets haven't been on any prolonged winning streaks yet? I, You know, if you gave me a choice, and I asked this on the air uh, a couple weeks ago, and there isn't an exact comparison because the Yankees are about six games better than the Mets, I think, standings-wise. But the Yankees have had a couple of winning streaks. If you told me we're going to get to the exact same place record-wise, would you rather get to that record as a streaky team that's had an eight-game winning streak, but you've also had a five-game losing streak? Or would you rather get to where you are with how the Mets have done it? And I would absolutely choose what the Mets have done. The Mets have been a remarkably consistent team. And it started right from the get-go. They lost those back-to-back games on the first road trip of the season. And then they went over a month without losing back-to-back games. And as that streak was going on, you know, I even said it on the air, boy, they also don't win a lot of games in a row. Like, their longest winning streak for a big chunk of the season was three in a row. And that obviously ended during that stretch, that great homestand that they had when they swept the Philadelphia Phillies and they swept the Washington Nationals. Outside of that, that six-game winning streak, they've won three in a row. Then they lose a game or two. Then they win two in a row. Then they lose a game. I prefer this. Like, if you gave me an option, again, you're getting to the exact same place, same win-loss record, 
Would you rather get here this way, the way the Mets have, being remarkably consistent, or would you rather be a streaky, streaky team? Streaky teams are not good for our health. Because here's what happens if the Mets were a streaky team. And I would fall victim to this too. I'd come on after a winning streak. We're the best. Nobody can stop us. Then I'd come on after a losing streak. I'd sound like a Yankee fan. Oh my God, we suck. We got to cut everybody. This is terrible. The GM's an idiot. The manager's a moron. Oh my God. You don't have those highs and lows when you play like this. And I think overall... That's healthier. And and I'll give you a reason why. It's not a perfect reason, but at least this goes through my head. When you're in the postseason, are you going to have an eight-game winning streak? No. You're going to need to be remarkably consistent. You're going to need to avoid losing streaks. If you have a losing streak in the postseason, there's a good chance you're going home. So responding to losses with wins, this team's been so good at that. So does not concern me at all. In fact, I prefer it this way. I just want to keep on winning, so whatever it takes. Uh, from at Carton underscore Craig, must be a, uh, a fan. Uh, prediction on win total, how far will they go, the Mets? Oh, my God. Uh, look, I'm not sitting here predicting a World Series. I don't have that feeling in my stomach. I don't think I've ever had that feeling in my stomach. But I do think, and this is saying something for the team we root for, we're going to have October baseball. And while that may seem, oh, that's obvious. Well, is it obvious? Is it? We, how many playoff games have we seen in our lifetime? We haven't seen a lot. If you're under the age of 20, how many have you seen? I think they're going to win in the mid-90s. That's the number. That's why the Braves cooling off, you know, would, is an important thing. And speaking of the Braves, they haven't lost three games in a row all season long. How about what they've done? They've also followed that kind of remarkable, consistent path. But right now I'm feeling 90, probably 95, 96 wins. But I don't know about the postseason, man. I I can't sit here and give you a grandiose prediction. I'm also in a lose-lose situation no matter what I say. If I come out and say the Mets are going to win the world, so you're getting cocky. If I say the Mets are going to lose, ah, you got Roberts-itis. I'm just going to give you an honest answer. I have no effing idea. That's my honest answer. I really don't have an idea. I do have an idea that the Astros are going to beat the Yankees in the ALCS, though. Mm. That I'm pretty confident about. I, mean, I know you are too, Pete, right? Yeah, you just oh, yeah. can't beat the Astros. I, mean, I put a nice tweet out today saying that they're definitely uh, Astros are probably winning the World Series this year. And then that blew up my face after uh, the walk-off by Aaron Judge. So thank you for that. Now, nah, listen, the Yankee fan can say what we <laughs> said about the series against the Dodgers. That's the greatest split in the history <laughs> of splits. Dude, they got no hit for 16 innings. They were terrible. I know. Yeah, but, but, but here's what the Yankees did. The Yankees as a team over a four-game series hit like 130, whatever it was. And they split it. Like, the fact they walked away with a split when they couldn't hit for 75% of this series and the ability to fight back. I know that would excite me as a Met fan. Uh, I would want to do better than a split at home. I think everybody would admit that. But I think the, the fight that the Yankees show is what, as a fan, we love. And I think we've had that similar feeling, not to the same extent, with the Mets this year, where they're never out of a game. And so you always feel like, all right, they will show you fight. We got time for one more. End it uh, good. All right. Uh, you want to hear from Frank the Tank? No, we don't want to hear from him. No. Um, all right, this is more about a healthy McNeil. If McNeil comes back full, health, fully healthy, is it time to sit Eduardo for a stretch? He's been black hole in the yes. lineup. Yes, yes. 
I completely agree. Right now, the best version of the New York Mets would feature Luis Guillerme playing every day. Because even in a series against the Marlins, where Luis was 0 for 12, whatever it was, 0 for 11, his defense is so good. So good. And I think McNeil defensively at third base, and that's exactly what I would do. I'd have Luis at second, Jeff McNeil at third base. Plus, here's the other thing about Guillerme. And I know this is not the greatest weekend as an example, but I'm using his entire career watching him as as a better example. He will give you at-bats. He will give you battles. He's not going to strike out on sliders in the dirt. Like, he will give you those war of an at-bat. So, I'm not saying this is the permanent solution, but when McNeil walks through that door, and they miss him, they miss him greatly. Jeff McNeil has done a lot in not playing over the last five days. Sometimes you appreciate a guy even more when they're not there. But the best version of the New York Mets right now would be Jeff McNeil playing third base and Luis Guillerme playing second base. You saw it in the ninth inning of the finale of this series, even in a series in which the guy doesn't hit. I know he had one bad defensive miscue. It wasn't even a defensive miscue. It was a hard-hit ball that he couldn't get in front of. He is so good defensively, and I think he would make up for the lack of pop that he has compared to Escobar with how many runs he'd save you at second base, and I think McNeil would be fine at third base. Uh, can we I give, will talk. Yeah, go ahead. Can I give you a comp? Tell me if I'm wrong. Gio Rochella, Luis Guillorme, very similar to Glove. I think Guillorme's better. I mean, Gio Rochella played a really good third base. I know the defensive metrics were never kind to him, but I think Guillorme, if we saw him every day, and we've seen him a lot over the last few days, I think he's a gold glove second baseman. I think he is as good defensively at second base as you'll ever see. I think him and Lindor's chemistry is crazy over there. So I think it brings out the best in Lindor. Uh, you have to hit a certain amount to be... Like, we've seen defensive first guys play. Ray Ordonez has done it. We've seen it behind the plate. It's different because I think you don't want to have too many positions on the field in which you're relying strictly on defense. But Luis has hit. I mean, there have been times this year where Luis has hit. But I think he's so good defensively that he's worth playing. I'm not even joking. Next week, we will debate it because I think it's an interesting discussion. If you're Steve Cohen with a billion dollars to spend, would you prioritize going after Aaron Judge or waiting a year for Shohei Otani? Your thoughts, you can tweet it at Evan Roberts WFN, and we will discuss it on the next edition of Rico Bronia, which we'll record right after they wrap up the brief two-game series against the Houston Astros. Pete Hoffman produces Tiki and Tierney. You can hear that 10 to 2 on the fan. I'll be with Craig uh, for part of the week. There may be some more vacation on the horizon, but no vacation from Rico Bronia. We'll be back with you after the Astros series. Thank you very much for listening. Rate, review, do whatever the hell you do with podcasts. Something like that. Thanks for listening to Rico Bronia. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronia podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times. <laughs>